Hey ContraZoom listeners, today's episode contains spoilers for Avengers Age of Ultron and all other Marvel movies. This has been your heads up warning. This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. Today we have a pretty interesting topic. Normally we like to pretend that we're all hoity-toity and only like uh, really critically acclaimed films. But you know what? Film isn't just about turning the mirror on yourself and coming up with new and interesting ideas and thinking about things in new ways. Sometimes movies are just to have fun. You know, film as a whole was created as an escapist entertainment, so why does that mean that we can't talk about it in sort of a critical eye as well? Not in a sense of, hey, how does this measure up to the Oscar winners, but more so, how does this measure up on the fun index, which I think is a great way to look at the Marvel Universe, which is what we're going to be talking about for this episode. Um, We're going to see what we think about these movies do they stand up for our taste does it stand up as summer blockbuster tentpole films and things like that yeah absolutely and you raise a good point back when movies first came out in fairs and the like the upper class saw this as tomfoolery and just something that that should be snubbed and completely disregarded and now that films have been honed and fine-tuned a little bit, yes, we have our critically acclaimed films. But yeah, as you said, it, sometimes it doesn't hurt to feel good, especially now that it's not seen as an insult to like movies that can be silly or movies that can be just a lot of fun as opposed to something with an in-depth political context, even though I feel like some of the Marvel movies do have a little bit of that. Um, yeah, so especially with something as grand as the Marvel series. I think this is both a bit of a push on not just comic book films, but just, as you said, blockbusters entirely, because there's the, the pushing of boundaries of what it can mean to be a franchise and what you can get away with it. So this should be an interesting episode. Absolutely. So we're going to start off our talk just by sort of Uh, bouncing off some ideas of what we thought about the latest installment that would be Avengers 2 Age of Ultron Uh, and then after we're going to do something a little more familiar we're going to go into um, ranking as as you've come to use or you've come to get used to with us um, even though we're only a few episodes in um, we're going to get to ranking just the Avengers based Marvel movies sadly we can't include the X-Men films, even though I think the two latest ones are easily the best Marvel movies, we're going to focus on the ones that are contained within the Avengers universe because th- that's the the rolling snowball turning into a massive, massive boulder that um, is the most important when it comes to the push of the Marvel movies, I would say. And before we get into that, we should actually discuss this this huge effect that the Marvel movies are having. I mean, if you look at how successful they are, they this franchise has reaped in billions and billions and billions of dollars with just a few movies alone, never mind all of them put together. So I think it's best that we look into what these films mean and why we're actually talking about this. Because 
as you said, it doesn't hurt to have fun, but why are we really talking about Marvel and these Avengers movies? Because I think there's a lot more to the topic than just them being fun and being successful. Yeah, where, where we're at right now with Avengers 2, it is the second last film of Phase 2 in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Each grouping, they're, the plan for the this universe is to be three phases at the moment at least. Uh, the first part is about was about uh, introducing all of the characters and it ended with the Avengers. So once you had introduced all the characters, um, they all came together. And then phase two is sort of the continuing aspects while also introducing some some new stories, uh, one of them being Guardians of the Galaxy and the other ones being the unreleased Ant-Man. Uh, but we're basically winding down with phase two. And then phase three is sort of the culmination of what it all means while also introducing um lesser known characters you know you look back and when iron man first came out iron man wasn't a big property you know you had your spider-mans your batmans your x-men outside of that comic books weren't really big and yet now you look at it and we have the avengers where we have all these characters put together and they're all household names, you know. Uh, you see the Hulk everywhere. You see Black Widow and Hawkeye and all these sort of things. So it's kind of an interesting evolution to where they they slowly built it up and they didn't just start out with an Avengers film with all these minor characters because that probably would have bombed, frankly. What, what, what was your initial reaction? Because you just watched I had watched it a few weeks ago and you had just watched it. Right. Um, I... Did before going into this, I did hear that some people were a bit more on the fence with it. It wasn't as unanimously beloved as the first Avengers, and I'm done watching it. Uh, well, I watched it last night, of course, and I've got to say, um, I don't, I don't see why people are being as hard on it as they are. But at the same time, I do get where they're coming from. It's, it's got a pulse. It definitely does, and it's got a lot of fun injected into it, and. Um, in terms of this being, I guess, another Whedon or Joss Whedon um, adventure in the Marvel universe, you can't help but compare it with the first Avengers because that was his that was his child as well. Um, so if you do do that, you will see it as a weaker film. There's no question about it. But at the same time, it has its own strengths. And the first Avengers, because I guess it was Phase One, as you said, it's. Uh, it's the coming together of all of these people. In the second film, because you see pretty much this team we've grown to love with all of these toys put into into toy stores, um, these games based on it, all, like just everything franchise based, where you just see this team all together as this iconic group of people. We could finally get to see this team on screen, kind of having this normal banter where it's like, oh, these guys have known each other for a while now. You know, you you get a lot of fun out of just the characters being themselves as opposed to wondering who is this person or what is this? But at the same time, there is still a lot of tension between everybody. And it's not this illusion that everybody's hunky dory and, and, and it's fine. You know, you, you get the positive and negative tension between Black Widow and the Hulk, for instance. And um, you, you have this question of how powerful truly is Thor, you know, when, like everybody's having fun and trying to lift his hammer. You see that he still has 
a bit of self-doubt when he thinks that somebody might have been able to do that. But you can see that his his um, his wit and his dry sense of humor is perhaps maybe a front because he's still conflicted about himself. You see a lot of normal humanistic reaction with one another, which I think is the biggest magnetic force that draws people to these Marvel movies because they're superheroes, but we're not alienated by their sorrows and their woes. You know, we get a bit of their dramatic conflicts, but at the same time, we see them as just everyday people and we strive to be like these people. They're they're pretty fallible, I would say. Yes, absolutely. And and I think that really adds to it because you're you're talking about the scene in in Avengers two when uh, after a party they're all trying to see if they can lift Thor's hammer and you know he they, he it starts out it's funny because I think it's what is it Tony Stark that is the first one to try it I think so yeah. okay so I, I actually have... love the Hulk's um, the Hulk's t- when he tries to do it because that's one of my favorite funny both parts in the movie actually where. You think he's going to turn green and get angry, but it's kind of like a, a half-assed attempt at getting angry, and he just looks at everybody like, well, you want me to get pissed all the time? You know? Yeah, but like it started yeah. out with, with Tony Stark going up to the hammer, and, and you could see you know, Thor's looking cocky and be like, uh-huh, I know, I know Tony Stark is not worthy of, of picking up my hammer. He, you know, he, he's too full of himself. He has... He's too egotistical. He isn't selfless. Everything is is self serving. There's no way yeah. that that he can pick up my hammer. I I know he's not worthy of it. And so you know, of course, he goes. He goes. Arr! He can't do it. And he gets uh, his Iron Man arm, and he gets War Machine to come and help him. And they're both tugging at it. It's pretty funny. And you know, Thor's laughing. And then when Hulk goes up, you know, you see a little bit of a. Uh, I don't know. Like when he turns into the when when Banner turns into the Hulk. Is is he really strong enough to pick up the hammer? And then from there, he, he starts to get even more uncertain because Captain America gets up. And Captain America is known as being the most pure at heart. Everything he does is for other people. Like, yeah. he never puts himself first in any situation, you know, sometimes to his detriment. And he, he puts his hand on the hammer and it looks like it moves a, like a, the, the tiniest little millimeter. It looks like it. And you see Thor kind of freak out internally yeah. and then and then captain america doesn't realize that it moved a little bit he goes oh i guess i can't do it either and you know thor kind of goes oh yeah oh all right uh, done playing games with my hammer now all right everyone let's, let's stop doing bullet. that yeah exactly and they even bring it up later on where it's you know even uh, as you said captain america doesn't realize that he did budget so near the end of the movie they're still joking about it. it's like what if it was on an elevator you know and thor's but Thor's got this front on again where he's like, oh, yeah, no, no, that wouldn't work. That wouldn't work. But you could tell deep down it's like, OK, stop talking about this. I, I haven't forgotten that close scare we had. You know? Yeah. Now, a lot of the criticism up until this point is that it's I don't want to say it's people have been saying it's misogynistic. I know there there has been some ridiculous claims about that. But basically, they've been it started out where um Black Widow was not necessarily there just to be sexy, but, you know, put her in the tight clothing, don't have her do very much because, you know, Scarlett Johansson is an attractive woman. Do you think that they finally started to rectify that situation? If you ever even thought that they were, you know, just using Scarlett Johansson as eye candy? I never thought that. I I do have a point about this. I I never thought that per se because based on the character who is like that. And if anybody tries to treat female characters with some sort of dignity, it'd be Joss Whedon. And um, 
I feel like maybe the promotional work maybe added that idea, but in the actual movie, I don't think it was as prominent. You know, I, I feel like a lot of the sexist remarks came from people who tried to view things a specific way. But in this in this newest movie, Age of Ultron, actually, I feel like a little bit of the way that some of the characters talk to um, talk to Black Widow's character is I wouldn't call it sexist, but it's a little bit of it is you're the you're the female in this movie. Let's talk to you as if you're the female in this movie. And um, you know, there's some of the ways that like Hawkeye, for instance, I can't remember exactly what he said. Um, like none of it's sexist, but you know, like he's talking to Black Widow, kind of like, what do you say? We could go get out of here for a while, you know, like just talking to her as if it's a man talking to a woman. And, you know, um, Tony Stark makes some joke where it's like, are you two done playing hide the zucchini, which is obviously a sex joke in regards to the Hulk. And yeah, I mean, again, I don't think it's intentionally sexist at all, but there's still this kind of inability to completely throw away any sort of connotations when it comes to that. And I, I, I think of that as something that stuck out more in this movie, maybe because you had a character like um, Elizabeth Olsen's, who I don't feel was thrown in as like this eye candy um, or possibly seen as thrown in as this eye candy, sexy kind of role. That was a female role that was neutral, strong. And I'm going to go more into um, Elizabeth Olsen's uh, character uh, as we go on, but I do believe in a lot of ways that she is one of the strongest characters in the Marvel Universe. I know that might just be my opinion, but that was one of the highlights of this movie, and I feel like they managed to not have any connotations with her, so I don't know why they had to have any at all with Scarlett Johansson, you know? I, I hear what you're saying. I, For me, I thought black widow was basically a completely useless character up until captain america 2 up until yes. then you know she's been there for the token action scene there to distract the bad guys because she's a pretty woman and all this sort of thing and then finally in captain america 2 they actually gave her something to do and then they followed that up in avengers by making you care about her for the first time i actually cared about her as a character especially when they went into her backstory a little bit with the dream sequences and things like that and showing i thought her friendship with hawkeye was an excellent example of a really good platonic friendship where you, you, at the beginning you're like are they seeing each other what's going on and then when it's revealed that hawkeye has a wife and kids and all this sort of thing you look at it and you're like oh i'm just conditioned as a movie watcher to believe that anytime a male and a female character get along they're you assume that they're sleeping together or that they're going to end up together well, I think you you do raise a good point um, with the fact that Hawkeye and Blackwood are platonic. I did bring up the fact that there is a lot of suggestive discussions between the two of them. But in the end, it, it is a platonic relationship. And you are right about that. I still feel that some of their dialogue is a little bit of what I was suggesting before, that um, we have to be reminded that this is a female character and this is how a guy would talk to this female character. I do feel there is a little bit of that, but at the same time, their friendship is still very strong. Um, I do think you raise a good point with um, Black Widow being represented in the franchise for the better portion of it as just being... I wouldn't call her a throwaway character, though. I would consider her somebody who was underused and 
not used in the right methods and means. I think in the first Avengers, she was uh, finally realized as a as a living dimensional character, and in the second Captain America, as you brought up, um, she was fully utilized as well. And we're now used to seeing this Black Widow that's, you know full of dimension and layering but we we do forget that well not you of course but um sometimes uh we forget that she was this character who stood in the background of iron man 2 and used as a promotional gimmick where she, we're gonna feature black widow it's played by scarlett johansson and she's somebody where i wouldn't consider her useless but if you did take her away from the movie not much would have changed you know that was just her being included in the series but even though she's in it for however long she is, she felt as quickly tossed in as Hawkeye and Thor. That very quick cameo, you know what I mean? Yeah. But that isn't the case. So um, it is good to finally see this character being um, as realized as she can be. But I still think they could do even more with her. I truly feel that way. Yeah. I think for me... One of the things that really stuck out is once again, the MVP of both Avengers films is Mark Ruffalo. I, I think his performance as the Hulk and Bruce Banner is, is the, is probably the best work in the entire franchise. And I don't know why they haven't decided to, to make a standalone Hulk movie if they feel that he works best in the short bursts. But I think his character and and the emotions he relays are are so on point that he steals the show for me no he is terrific um i don't know if i'm delusional i might have heard somewhere that it might be a studio problem kind of similar to uh, what spider-man and x-men have except the character could be used but he can't have a standalone film i it was something like that some some but he already had a, a standalone film with um Edward Norton in it. Yeah. No, no, I, I, I know that, but was it like the same studio and everything? Yeah, yeah. It's a part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right. Okay. So, um, I don't know. Maybe whatever I read was a bit off, but if that's the case, then I don't know why they haven't had, um, I don't know why they haven't had his, another standalone because if anything, they need more of a reason because, as you said, they had Edward Norton before and Ruffalo himself hasn't had his own, um, his own film yet as as the Hulk, and if anything, he's one of the most in depth characters in the entire franchise, especially with the glimpse of humanity you see in him in uh, the first Avengers movie. I think that's some of the most emotional uh, screenwriting and acting in the entire franchise. You know, so for me, it it really it really boils down to two scenes. One, one scene in the first Avengers when he's telling the story about how he's trying to get rid of the Hulk when Bruce Banner's trying to get rid of a Hulk he retells a story about how he went up to the Arctic he pulled a gun shot himself uh, in the mouth or the head or whatever it was and as he shot himself the Hulk took over chewed up and spit out the bullet and he ended up being okay and just the way he told that story was so scary and frightening about how this personality absolutely controls him as well. Uh, and then in Avengers 2, I guess there's, there's two, two key moments that, that really did it for me. Um, one as Bruce Banner when 
they're all um when all the guys are, are being controlled by uh scarlet witch at the beginning and he's standing at the back of the airplane and can't understand what's happening and he says hey guys is it, is it time for a code green is it time for a code green and he's all scared because he'd rather not turn into the hulk than turn into the hulk and and then uh, one final part is when he is the hulk and him and iron man are fighting and Iron Man mentions Bruce Banner and the Hulk flips him and goes, okay, okay, yeah, don't, I won't mention that puny little Bruce Banner again. Sorry, I won't do that. And you realize how much the, the two of them are, are fighting to coexist in the same body. Yeah, and you, you raise, again, a lot of good points because this is a character that just has so much to him. And you see later on in the film, the more of that conflict of why do, why must I be the Hulk? I don't want to be the Hulk, especially in like the big, however long it is, like a forty minute climactic ending. You know, um, you see a lot of you see a lot of restraint from him, trying not to burst out into the green person, and it ends up being um, Black Widow that ends up getting him to be green. But you could see that there's a bit of resentment there, especially at the very end where he decides to kind of isolate himself. You know, and um, I feel like this is a sickness to him. Everybody else, it's it's less of that. You know, um, Tony Stark is a genius. You've got uh, Captain America, who you said is like the most pure and noble and and heartfelt. You've got Thor, who's who's basically mythological royalty and a god. You know, and um, the only person who is sick with this with this disease of a superpower is the Hulk, and it's something that you could tell he feels he's almost taken advantage of, even by his friends. Even though it's for the best interest of saving humanity, you know, it still feels like this is something that you know he's powerless, but completely empowered by it at the same time, you know. And um, you're right, Ruffalo is the best choice for this character because he can truly display all of these conflicts with just his expressions alone yeah uh that all said how about uh we get down into our countdown now there are 11 total films normally you know i like nice round numbers of 10 but because there's 11 we figured we might as well go go into this now it's only one extra so assume number 11 is uh honorable mention or whatever you want to call it uh but number 11 in this countdown is uh the incredible hulk that would be the original one that came out in 2008 starring edward norton uh and directed by louis leterrier who uh who's a famous french director who does action films uh we both put this at the bottom of our list what was it for you that that made it so low well, I think especially with your recent love and um, devotion to the Mark Ruffalo Hulk, I think even if you didn't compare the two, you'd find that there is a little bit lost with the original, or not the original, like the only Incredible Hulk movie, I guess. <laughs> um, uh, if you do compare the two Hulks, you see the Ruffalo one has more heart and more of the internal conflict. Um, with the Incredible Hulk, uh, you see a lot of intent to about these kinds of ideas, but a lot of it gets lost in the mix of trying to be this poignant, stellar movie that, you know, this was 
this was around the time when Marvel was first starting as well. And once when we get to Iron Man one, I'm going to talk more about this. But you know, you were you had movies that were following in the demise of the original Marvel universe, and they had to take some risks. I think Iron Man worked, and I'll get into that when we get there. But I think uh, the Incredible Hulk had some good intentions of being gritty and realistic, but um, I think they fell a bit flat, and while we've been attacked, I feel like they just didn't capture the realism of what they're trying to obtain, and I think you have a good reason as to why they didn't, and what would that be? At the time, this was only the second film in, in the franchise. It came out the same year as Iron Man, and it seemed like at this point, they weren't really sure what they had on their hands. Iron Man had just come out. And, you know, when they were making the Hulk, I, I assume that Iron Man wasn't released at this time um, because they came out literally a month apart. So they're basically being filmed at the same time. So you have this un- these two unknown properties. How are they going to work? How are we going to sort of tie them in together? What- what's it going to be? like that um are we going to be you know super serious like nolan's dark knight films are we going to be really campy and cheesy uh, is there is there somewhere in the mm-hmm. middle and i think where iron where the incredible hulk absolutely failed was it tried to take itself way too seriously in a franchise that has now prided itself on not taking itself seriously where it is okay with making fun of itself at every other scene where this one you had edward norton who's a very respected actor and amazing in almost everything he does playing this super serious character but it just didn't work yeah and uh, what I was alluding to before is I know you have a big gripe with one of the other actors who um, you say this movie is very serious, but you felt like this actor was not only the complete polar opposite, but so obliviously so that even in a franchise, as you said, likes to have fun and poke fun at itself, even this was too over the top. Would you care to go into Tim Roth's character a little bit? Yeah, the Tim Roth played the bad guy, uh, a character called Abomination, and he ended up basically being the exact same thing as Hulk, but uh, army trained, gray, weird thing. I don't know if everyone has seen this one or not. It, it definitely had the the lowest grossing film of the entire franchise. And so you had Norton being Mr. Serious in every single scene, not even being able to crack a smile. And then you had Tim Roth taking the acting up to like a level 12 where everything was screaming and in your face and over the top and and ridiculous to the point where it was even believable. And you had these two characters in the same scene. It was just nonsense. And then you get introduced later to... Um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Tim Blake Nelson's character, who's the scientist who, who's trying to help Edward Norton's Hulk. And he's also way over the top and doesn't seem to fit in at all with this sort of universe that they've got going on. The only one that kind of fits in is William Hurt as this uh, military general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... Uh... I think this film would have been better had they developed the universe a little bit more and they knew what they were trying to do with it because you had two movies, again, Iron Man, which we'll all go into why that one worked later on, and The Incredible Hulk. And you basically had two shots in the dark. I think they're both very different in terms of tone. And 
you could tell which one commanded the entire universe afterwards. So I think if they had a chance to really see what they wanted to do with all of these films, because now they've got like they've got their finger on the pulse and they know exactly what they're doing with all of these phases and, and everything. Um, I think if they waited a little bit and seen what the universe was all about, it wouldn't be as conflicted and befuddled, I would say. I, I think if they had waited a year after Iron Man 1 to do any other films, they'd have they'd at least have that reception, figure out what worked and what didn't work with Iron Man and apply that to where they wanted the universe to go. And with Hulk being released a month after Iron Man, they were clearly being filmed at the exact same time so that they couldn't coordinate what they wanted to do, which, which is sort of a shame that now the Incredible Hulk is basically relegated to a forgotten part because Edward Norton didn't come back. And the Hulk, it did so poorly that they... they aren't giving the Hulk another standalone film at this point, which is sort of frustrating. Yeah. It sounds like the Hulk franchise within the Avengers is like the Hulk. It's self-destructive. Yeah. All right. Uh, so moving on to number 10, we've got Iron Man two. So this is in the, the middle of the Iron Man trilogy that came out. Um, the second one that was directed by John Favreau, and this came out in 2010. It was a third movie in the series. Uh, I definitely felt that Iron Man 2 was the weakest one in, in the three. What about you? No, I I do agree with that. It's not to say that it's like this awful movie that should be shunned and you know not given the light of day, but, but clearly this movie was the closest or one of the closest movies that any of the Marvel movies now have come to being the Marvel movies of the past, where they're overloaded with too many characters. They are confused with what they're trying to do. Um, you know, this reminded me a lot of the third Spider-Man movie without being nearly as bad, of course. Um, but you had a lot of characters with a lot of things that could have been attributed to them had they fully made them realized and, and dimensional. But instead, you kind of have a Tony Stark one-man show with, you know, with all of these characters and how they're going to be included into the Marvel Universe or within this movie alone. You know, a lot of it was more, let's put on a good show and have fun. And it lost a lot of... It lost a lot of what the first film had to say, you know, and what the third film tried to pick up and say in response, which I think the third film got a bit weakened by the second because it had to pick up a lot of the pieces that the second one had. The second film was still fun, but it felt it felt like the biggest throwaway or possible throwaway within the Marvel Universe so far, because whereas The Incredible Hulk felt like a gamble that just failed, this movie kind of felt like let's let's try and create some anticipation for the Avengers movie, which a few films have felt like um, within the second phase, not as much, but within the first phase. Yeah. And this is definitely the biggest offender of those. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, the Hulk is the only absolutely unwatchable one of the 
of the series, but Iron Man 2 is is dangerously close to that, where I would say just go from Iron Man 1 to Iron Man 3. Uh, Mickey Rourke's performance is absolutely ridiculous. I don't know what the hell they were thinking with, with having him <laughs> on that. Uh, his... his I don't know. It just—it was just a bit of a mess where the plot didn't really—you didn't care about the plot at all. Robert Downey Jr. was his usual self, but at the same time, it seemed a little bit phoned in. Um, there's just nothing really unique or special about this movie. Yeah, it's a—it's a funny point they bring up Mickey Rourke because the weird thing for me is I do consider him a highlight of the movie and that's not saying because I disagree I do think he was over the top as well but I think he was over the top in the late 90s early 2000s sense of a comic book movie like Willem Dafoe in the in the first Spider-Man with the very over the top voice and the theatrical presence of the way he stomps along the ground you know um yeah the thing is I consider him a highlight but I wouldn't say that's a good thing on his part I consider that a low point of the movie as a whole you know yeah it definitely was a a bit of a a weird one and you know as far as Mickey Rourke goes this was I think only a a year or two after the wrestler came out so he was suddenly a hot commodity again this was like his big follow-up film after that and then he sort of once again became the laughing stock of Hollywood once again because he chooses really terrible movies to do and there there isn't there isn't a much of a nuanced performance that Mickey Rourke ever really gives. Sometimes his personality works like in the wrestler, but most of the time it doesn't. I think the wrestler is one of the more defining performances and films actually of the last day that preceded this one. And it's just sad because the wrestler was his Iron Man where he was the laughing stock of the world, just like Robert Downey Jr. was. And both films revitalized their careers. Whereas Robert Downey Jr. is still going and with such a hot streak, I feel like Mickey Works kind of disappeared into oblivion again. Not necessarily as a joke, I would say, but um, to put the to put these two actors together in one movie, you could see which one has made it and which one's still struggling despite having made it. You know? Yeah. Um, now to follow that up. In ninth place, we have the follow-up to Iron Man 2, Iron Man 3. Uh, That one came out uh, just recently, just in 2013, and that was a change of pace. The first two were directed by Jon Favreau, but the third one was directed by Shane Black, who did Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which was probably Robert Downey Jr.'s big comeback film after his descent into oblivion in the late 90s, early 2000s. I I found it worked quite a bit, especially because it was the first film after the Avengers and a a lot of it was having to deal with mortality. uh, How do you cope with you now know that there are aliens in this universe and and our world was invaded and all these sort of really interesting humanistic traits that up until then we really hadn't seen from Robert Downey Jr. It's a great thing you do bring up Shane Black because Robert Downey Jr. and him did work on Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which that movie threw in a lot of punches and did a lot of really experimental things. I think the movie benefited for it. Of course, you can't be as experimental in a movie like Iron Man 3 because you're a part of this franchise. You have to keep a similar tone throughout. 
But I feel like there was a lot of life brought back into it because of this new refreshing director, not just because it was a new director, but because it was Shane Black. Now, I feel like the only good thing the second Iron Man movie brought to the, to the universe is having Don Cheadle brought in. And um, the third Iron Man had to clean up a lot of whatever happened before in the second movie. And while it wouldn't have made Iron Man 3 this perfect movie ever, because I think it would have been impossible, I think it did put it back on the right track. And I don't think they're ever going to make another Iron Man. If they did, it's easier to follow up this one than with the second one. Now, this movie also has an actor who's who kind of fell from gray. And, you know, what do you think of, of Ben Kingsley? Um, I know a lot of people were sort of really angry with the uh, Mandarin fake out, uh, where where Mandarin was supposed to be the main villain, and then it turns out it's just a junky actor that's playing him. Um, when the real actor, when the real villain was basically just a businessman sort of thing. Um, I'm a little disappointed with the way that was handled. I thought that could have been a really cool and interesting villain. And I really like Ben Kingsley. What's not to like about him, frankly. Um, so I think I'm not angry by it. I'm just sort of disappointed by it. Yeah. Especially with the huge sense of promise. I'm for some reason, Iron Man likes the trilogy likes to pick up actors who have kind of disappeared into oblivion. Ben Kingsley's obviously not the big out of the three because um, of the other two backstories and drug problems and the like. Ben Kingsley's just done a lot of poor movie choices, and it's unfortunate because I truly consider him to be one of the greatest of our time. I mean, he's got so much talent he's got to give, and he picks some of the worst movies. So you have him playing who's considered to be one of the greatest villains in marvel never mind just iron man you know and the fact that it is this fake out i did say that that was difficult to follow up iron man 2 with all the mistakes it made but this was clearly a mistake that this movie made in itself because there was nothing in iron man 2 that could have caused this decision this was just within this film and i think that could have been a little bit of uh, Shane Black trying to go outside of the box a little bit, where in a lot of the movie it works, but in this decision, I I think a lot of people have the have are very right in being angered. Yeah. Um, all right. Going on number eight, we have Thor one. Uh, that movie came out. Uh, when was that? That came out back in 2011, and it was directed by Kenneth Branagh, which I think of all people, <laughs> of all people when when that was first announced, it was like Kenneth Branagh doing Thor. And then when I saw an interview with him, and, and the reason why he decided to do it was he viewed it as this Shakespearean film where you know you had two brothers warring against each other with their father for the throne and and when you describe it that way it does sound very Shakespearean you know it could fit in next to uh, Macbeth or Hamlet uh, and have similar themes to talk about that said I thought it was 
it had some really interesting stuff, but it was a bit of a jumbled mess. Half the film took place on Asgard, their home planet, and the other half took place on Earth. And basically, I found everything that happened on Asgard to just be a total mess and a very poor Errol Flynn knockoff. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I'm a fan of uh, Chris Hemsworth now. I think Thor as a character is great. But I remember when I first saw Thor, which I actually kind of liked the movie, and there are huge flaws, which we'll get into, but I do have to say his moments on Asgard are the reasons why, at the time, I thought Chris Hemsworth was the weakest of the Avengers actors, which I don't feel that way now. I think he's an asset and truly essential. But at the time, you know, just seeing him throwing over a table full of like ornaments and fruits on it with just such an over the top reaction and just the way he doesn't fit on earth which that's not just necessarily the character that's him as an actor not fitting on earth you know a lot of it like came from this confusion of what the movie tried to be it tried to be a podium for Kenneth Branagh spear as as we just mentioned as well as trying to fit in the marvel universe which i don't think it's as contrasting and ugly as it got in the incredible hulk but it is definitely noticeable and yeah it it does really stick out the weaker points of the movie which there are a lot of fun points and a lot of good in the movie but at the same time a lot of it is shoved in your face because of the fact that the movie's battling with itself with what it wants to be. That said, I think the best thing that Thor did was introduce Tom Hiddleston's Loki to the franchise. And and Loki so far has been the only real villain throughout the whole series that truly stands out and is unique and interesting as the superheroes themselves. Yeah, because you have a big lineup. You have like Anthony Hopkins who kind of that that's it you know um you have natalie portman who i think does a great job as a person but you don't truly believe she's like this scientist you know and you have idris elba who i think can be so much more utilized but is kind of stuck and at the same time i feel like he can be more utilized but at the same time he's kind of destined to kind of just be stuck with whoever he is and then you had chris hemsworth as thor with this movie, I felt like he wasn't as utilized as he could be. It, a lot of that was just muddled, but you're absolutely right with Tom Hiddleston. He's been, out of this movie, the most consistent because he was great from the get-go. And in terms of the villains, yeah, he's not just the most memorable, but he's almost like the most essential within the entire universe because of how well-established he made himself. Like, we needed this character within the rest of the universe somehow whether it's a big portion or a little portion and i feel like that wasn't just a creative decision i think that was hiddleston planting his place in the universe yeah he definitely stood out he's he's funny he's charismatic he's mean and cruel and he does it all with with a lot of personality and in a very unique way it seemed like they're going the universe was going to be overly reliant on Hiddleston's Loki but it seems like they're uh, they're trying to use him a bit less and introduce some new people because for a while it's, it, it just seemed like oh okay yeah uh, event, um, Marvel movie we're going to have the bad guy Loki okay what, what's new <laughs> about that what's unique about that Where where's the 
where's the line where you, these characters can keep fighting and no one actually gets hurt or dies or things like that so uh luckily they're they're using him a, a bit more sparingly and, and i think that the the franchise as a whole is is way better for that yeah while he is a great character i feel like a little bit of that is for fan service because um even when just thor came out never mind the first avengers loki was seen as this almost now it's almost in like a joking way just like this character that everybody couldn't let go of and again now it's kind of seen as a joke because um for some reason people were obsessed with that i don't know if it's because people consider tom Hiddleston attractive or very charismatic and engaging there was something that you know the marvel universe was kind of catering to this idea that yes you know what loki is great but we should include him more just because of this reaction and it's great that he is used sparingly now because i think he can be a great secret weapon as well and not just the focal point of everything as you said yeah uh now to follow that up in number seven we have thor 2 which only just came out uh last year oh was it two years ago yeah 2013 2013 wow yeah it was at the end of 2013 um and that was directed by alan taylor who had uh not worked on any of the marvel films before and and part of this is buoyed by my loving this film and you 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 not liking it as highly as i did so that's why it it ended up ranking so high because basically because of of my vote for it um i thought this was a fantastic follow-up after the avengers um the first avengers film the the whole all all the movies right after the first Avengers were sort of dealing with the aftermath of how that happened. So you have Iron Man three, Thor two, and Captain America two, which are all sort of the characters are dealing with um, this alien invasion and and almost losing and and feeling defeat for the first time and then trying to rebound from that and how do they go uh which i thought thor did a really great job with that especially with the stuff on earth with the way natalie portman's character um was still upset about you know having her planet invaded basically which i thought was a pretty funny thing yeah and whereas tom hiddleston didn't have to prove anything as we just discussed he was a bit a pretty much a main a main stake in the entire martin universe now the the plus points we get are a better chris hemsworth and a better natalie portman and um you know the relationship between those three actually are kind of what Again, I don't think this is a terrible movie or anything. I, I do think that there is a little bit of something that I, I can complain about. But if I'm going to go on the positivity here, I think it's um, Hemsworth and Portman and Hemsworth and Hiddleston. Those, that pair of relationships are what really keep this film going for me. Just seeing the acting being a lot better in this film than in the original Thor. And just seeing how how much more integrated these characters and their complicated relationships are. And um, yeah, again, that's what kept the film going for me. What did you think about that? You've probably felt it was stronger at all, right? Yeah, I did. I I thought one, one moment really stuck out for me as being great is Loki has been arrested. He's he's in the prison and then uh, Asgard gets attacked and Loki and Thor's mother ends up dying. 
Loki has a yeah. pretty good relationship with his mother, not so much with with his father. Uh, his mother's played by Rene Russo. And then Thor goes down to visit Loki uh, after he had been told that his mother had died. And Loki's tri- Loki's abilities is that he's almost a magician, so he can he can force people to see things that aren't really there and things like that. So he goes down, Thor goes down and his prison cell, which, you know, is still very nice for, for a prisoner because he has royalty, you know, he's got couches and tables and wine and things like that. He goes down and you see Loki and Loki's mocking Thor and his room looks all nice and clean and things like that. And then, you know, Thor says something and snap, Loki snaps his fingers and you realize that he had destroyed his bedroom, his prison cell, and he was sitting in the corner basically looking like he had been crying for for a whole day and he looks disgusting and all these sort of things. And I thought that was a really nice sort of tender moment of showing uh, his softer side and his weaker side that he, he may be a god, Loki may be a god, but he still has human emotions. Yeah, and it's good that you bring that up because one of the things that wasn't really well rounded, but they, they had good attention to the, the first Thor was this battle of what does it mean to be within this family? Who's more important? Is it me or my brother? And you again, yeah, they they might be gods, but they do have these humanistic emotions where they do feel tortured and they do feel unloved as well. And it's a good thing they do bring that up with um, the second film, because I feel like one of the better points is that they do bring this a little bit more. Um, I guess just to go into like why I ranked it so low now, because I'm talking so highly of it. um, I do feel like apart from these character relations and the acting and, um, just the characters themselves. I feel like until the ending, the movie trudges along a lot. And I feel like in terms of pacing within the Marvel world, I think um, apart from like these character dramas, I don't think there is a lot stringing me along as well as the other Marvel movies would, you know, I mean, um, I feel like a lot of it was me hanging on to just, these main characters and not necessarily what was happening outside of that you know i what like you obviously disagree with that entirely because you rank this very highly no i i hear what you're saying i think it just sort of comes down to to preference and i think uh one other thing that that really is great in the thor movies is uh stellan skarsgård performance and and both Thor's. I think he's just absolutely hilarious and brings uh, some nice levity to it. Uh, we don't necessarily forget, but sometimes we forget to bring light to um, the minor characters that do boost a little bit of whatever movies they're a part of. And it's a great, great it's a great thing you bring up um, Gore's character because, um, again, I feel like they are kind of like a little flip within these movies that. We don't forget that they exist, but we sometimes don't mention because we're busy focusing on like the big leads, you know. And um, again, we have Don Cheadle, we have um, Scars- uh, Sarsgaard, as you just said. Uh, and, you know, just in a lot of the other movies, um, I think we'll get, we'll get to them once we get to these movies, I guess. Um, they are 
a little bit important to the series because they do add a little bit of humor and um, they, they, they break the tension a little bit and remind you that, hey, these are comic book movies, you know, not everything has to be full of tension and all oh, the world's ending, you know, you need, well. Yeah, uh, but now moving on, uh, we, there is no number six in our countdown because we have a two-way tie for fifth place. Uh, the first one would be Avengers 2, which obviously just came out, and that one was directed by Joss Whedon, which will be uh, Joss Whedon's last film in the franchise, and we sort of talked about it earlier. I think uh, it's a little bit... It's a little bit lesser than the first Avengers, but it's still a very excellent action movie. You know, we, we talked about there's there's definitely a lot to enjoy, a lot to to love even if you if you want to go that strong. Uh, and, and they do a good job of introducing some new characters and concepts to the franchise to keep it fresh. With all of the new characters in this movie, two that are worth pointing out are Scarlet Witch and and Quicksilver, which I think Mark Ruffalo as the Hulk is. Definitely the strongest character in the entire universe. But if anybody were to come close or even possibly tie him, it's Elizabeth Olsen as Scarlet Witch, where her character is just so real and so full of emotion. And it's not just the way the character is written and developed. It's her portrayal of it as well, I think, is one of the more powerful characters within the universe. What did you think of her performance? I thought she was really strong. She uh, she brought a, a unique freshness where you know, uh, sorry, spoiler alert. She starts as, starts out as a bad guy and turns into a good guy. I think she has a really good transformation into that, realizing that uh, Ultron's motives aren't necessarily aligning with hers. While she may hate Tony Stark and Stark Industries for bombing out her village that she lived in back in Eastern Europe, her, her despising of Tony Stark doesn't mean that she feels everyone on the planet should die. And I think that she, she deals with some pretty heavy emotions and, and, and thoughts and carries them very well. Yeah. Which it's interesting that she's basically, it's impossible to not compare her to uh, Quicksilver. Um, are we allowed to compare the ending with another trauma she has to put up with? Sure, yeah. We're, we basically, if you haven't seen the Avengers 2 at this point, why are you even listening to us? <laughs> I guess we're that great to listen to. We're that magnetic. Um, okay, so at the end of Avengers 2, you basically see the death of Quicksilver, which. Um, I do feel like they treated a bit quickly, but if anything made that as climactic as it is, it was Elizabeth Olsen's character um, reacting to um, to his death. Now, having said that, it is impossible to to not compare and contrast them because they are twins, both Quicksilver and Scarlet Witch. They are twins, and um, whereas Elizabeth Olsen felt so real and damn if. I, I'd be lying if I said this was enough of, of her. I need to see her more and more movies. Aaron Taylor Johnson as Quicksilver. I am so conflicted with this actor in so many ways because I feel like he does always try his hardest. I don't know if he ever captures 
that humanism that Olsen, for instance, captured within her character. What did you think of his character as uh, Quicksilver? Uh, I liked him. I didn't love him. I thought he was interesting and... I, I like that they're adding more characters to the universe that, you know, you can't just throw 10 people in a room and expect to be able to understand all of their stories. Uh, so slowly adding people like Quicksilver and Scarlet, which is, is really smart of them in the Marvel Cinematic Universe as a whole. Um, but yeah, Elizabeth Olsen was was definitely the stronger of the two. I, I wouldn't say he was bad. Um, I just wouldn't say he was great. Yeah, I mean, let's look at the climatic scene, for instance. Like, just obviously in this Marvel universe, there are a lot of comedic moments and witty one liners because that's what comes from comic books. It's the norm within this culture. You just see the way, like, I can't remember the exact scene, but um, Quicksilver's being shot at, and he kind of looks at the people who accidentally are shooting when they're told to cease fire, and he looks at them with a shrug, like, come on, really? But whereas somebody like, um, Robert Downey Jr. would have done that with perfection and such a hilarious reaction. With Quicksilver, it almost felt a bit really out of place, you know, like uh, that was thrown in, you know. And the, to be fair, so many lines and reactions and humorous moments in comic book movies are really thrown in just for that very reason. But it's up to the actor to make them not feel that way and make it feel like this is a hilarious reaction and this had to have been there because now it's quotable or it's memorable. With with Quicksilver, though, it felt like a lot of it was, oh, this was in the script, so let's let's include it, you know. And it's unfortunate because I feel like Aaron Taylor, Aaron Taylor Johnson tries his hardest so often. I mean, he looks up to people like Daniel Day-Lewis as inspiration and he gets down the walking he gets down the voices he tries to do he gets down everything but the realism and it's unfortunate because i see this man trying so hard and out of the avengers and or the possible avengers whatever you would want to consider them within this movie he is the weakest as hard as it is to say that because again he tries so hard and he has a character who's a bit more difficult to play than some of the other ones you know All right, and then moving on, we have actually, like I said earlier, a tie with Avengers 2 in fifth place is also Captain America 1. Now, that movie is sort of interesting because it is the only real period piece of the series. Um, It came out in 2011. It was directed by Joe Johnson, uh, and it was called Captain America, the first Avenger. And so after, you know, four movies, they kind of finally introduced Captain America, and it's you know, actually World War II era where you, you see him become Captain America and all this sort of thing, the super soldier aspect. Um, and it's sort of a, a pretty unique take on a World War II, sort of like a, a war genre film. What, what did you think of it? Well, I remember when it first came out, uh, a lot of people had speculations because, first of all, he was considered the first Avenger, which in the comics, I believe that's not the case um the fact that that was included in the title a lot of people speculated oh this is this is just the start of let's make an avengers movie let's let's compile all these people in all of these movies to get this going let's promote the avengers and while i wouldn't think that cynically of it um it had the capability of being that so greatly and i think what saved it is as you said the fact that it is basically the only period piece 
film within this universe. And because of that, it gives it its own identity where it doesn't feel as fatal as what happened with Thor, for instance, where um, that had the capability of doing something similar because that takes place on Asgard. But instead, it feels like this self-fighting movie where it doesn't have an identity of its own. The first Avenger feels like its own being. And whereas it's not as strong as the second film of Captain America's, which we'll get into later, as a standalone, it's, it's, first of all, it's harmless. I don't have many things to gripe about it. And secondly, while it does feel like a lead into the Avengers, it feels like a satisfactory one where we get to learn about this character. It's not insultingly so, like, we have to watch this just to get the Avengers, you know. Again, it's harmless. Yeah, and that said, I think the the villains in this film are absolutely fantastic. You had Hugo Weaving playing Red oh, yeah. Skull, and then Toby Jones as his mad scientist assistant, and, and the two of them just work so great together. Hugo Weaving really commands the screen every time he's on it. Yeah, he's the perfect fit, because if you've seen any of his earlier roles, which how could you have not... Um, you know, The Matrix, Lord of the Rings, V for Vendetta. You have so many movies that this guy's been in. He's one of those actors that's known for being not just a character actor, but being fully capable of portraying masked or costumed or just full-on decked out in makeup. Any character that's really demanding in that sense. So, of course, when it comes to being Red Skull what better pick could there have been, you know? He's really good at acting with his voice. He doesn't need his face to to emote his voice does it enough yeah absolutely now um looking at another character we have peggy carter played by Haley atwell who has her own tv show now do you think her character was strong enough to warrant her own tv show or do you think that was just an expansion of this universe to try and just like branch out the story a little bit more well, I haven't seen um, her TV show, which I'm blanking on the name right now. What's it called? Uh, Agent Carter. That's what it's called. Yes. Um, okay. I, I blanked out as well. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, she was she was fine in the movie. They brought her back in Captain America 2 as well as an older version. And the TV show is, is period piece as well. Um other than than being, you know, uh, the love interest per se, she she's fairly forgettable as far as I can recall. Yeah, perhaps maybe the TV show was a way to try and reinstate her character as somebody who was fully uh, essential to the bigger picture, kind of like the way they tried to... Well, they had to save Black Widow from Iron Man 2, let's say that, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I've heard pretty good things about the show. I haven't actually watched it myself. I thought maybe you had more of an insight on it than I have. But um, it's this character now that's starting to be beloved and one of the one of the most um, acclaimed characters of the series now by fans in a similar way that Loki is, you know, where she's got like this massive fan base and cult following now, which um, I don't know. What do you have expected that from the first film, given that I do agree with you that um, she kind of serves as a character, the love interest, the person who kind of drives the plot, but not much outside of that, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think the action sequences in this film are probably some of the best in the series and have some, some really cool set pieces, especially with the, the, the train, the runaway train scene that they have. Yep. Yeah, I agree, which... Um, 
we could think of another movie that would rival it, but we're going to have to get into that a bit later on because I think um, I think what we both agree is the best movie of the universe probably has the best choreographed action sequences, but we'll get them when we get there. Yeah. Uh, and number four is Iron Man 1. Uh, that is the first film of the entire franchise that kicked everything off. It came back came out in 2008, directed by John Favreau, as I said earlier, and it sort of set the tone for everything that would come. It was basically perfectly cast with Robert Downey Jr. You know, they took, they basically just took his wise Alex, smart ass personality and put him in a superhero film, and it worked. Like, there, there's nothing to say other than that everything just clicked together. Yeah, and what I was alluding to before, I could finally get into now. This movie followed, or basically came out around the same time as something like The Dark Knight, and it followed Batman Begins, where it was the savior of the superhero genre, because you had the death of comic book movies in the 90s with, you know, absolute garbage like Batman and Robin, for instance. And you had the need for it to come back with the Spider-Man movies, you had um, the original X-Men trilogy, which those were good. They kind of had the same idea that these newer Marvel movies have, but not nearly as realized and not nearly as strong. And then you had this competition with the Dark Knight movies, which I remember when Iron Man came out, the fact that it was even seen as something that could compete with the Dark Knight at all was something that was just beyond me until I saw the movie itself. Not only is it just a lot of fun, but it has, in terms of the Marvel films, the perfect amount of serious and fun. I mean, it had a lot of great ideas put in in place where it wasn't just, I'm this man with all of this capability, I'm conflicted, you know. And I'm a little bit more when it comes to responsibility, when it comes to identity. I mean, the fact that basically everybody knows who Iron Man is at the end of it, I think that was great, especially when it was competing against the movie where Bruce Wayne can't reveal who he is, you know. Um, I feel like in terms of... A Marvel film, it's the strongest. It set the tone the entire time for the rest of the universe, whereas The Incredible Hulk was a gamble that didn't work. And yeah, I mean, there's a reason why the Marvel universe is so sought after and beloved. And I think a good reason is how well Iron Man kicked it off. Yeah. And you also had Jeff Bridges, who, while he was overacting too his overacting suited because you know you you had robert Downey jr's tony stark not taking everything too seriously and so you had jeff bridges chewing the scenery in a way that only he can that's still sort of laid back and not really in your face and and the two of them played off each other very well yeah now having said that now that we've gone through all of the iron man movies i think you'll probably be on the same page as me but who did it better terrence howard or Tom cheadle Probably Don Cheadle. You know, yeah. it's tough because, like, the, the Terrence Howard character of Rhodey wasn't really explored well enough in the first one. And then they just switched it up with Don Cheadle and gave him more to do, especially in the, the third Iron Man. Um, so by now, it's easy to look back and be like, oh, yeah, of course, Don Cheadle. Terrence Howard is a fine actor, but Don Cheadle has been able to do more with the role, which I think definitely plays into it. Yeah, no, I don't get where Terrence Howard's coming from when he says that Iron Man was basically the movie that kind of tanked his career. I, I don't know where he, where he came up with that idea, but perhaps if um, if he stuck around a little bit more, 
not only would he be more proud of the character and his involvement, but as you said, maybe he would have been fully realized because he is a good actor. I think he just picks a lot of bad roles. And um, maybe had, had he stuck to this franchise, um, we could have gotten a whole new different character and, um, and qualities out of this character because they're both very different people, Howard and Cheadle, right? And I don't know. I, you, you do have a point. Maybe it is easier to attach yourself to Don Cheadle because he's been he's been here longer and his character is more cemented but yeah i guess it's i guess it's something worth reflecting on as the universe goes on without terrence howard it's the same thing where you know edward norton while i don't think he was the best fit for the hulk i think that was more of an issue with the film as a whole was was very lost and wasn't sure what it wanted to be i think if norton had stuck around i don't think we'd be looking back as him being so miscast in that part. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, an actor can only do so much to save a role. Yeah. And, and you know, you look at just the lines that Mark Ruffalo had in, in the Avengers movies, there's no way that Norton couldn't deliver them with empathy and, and things like that as well. So it, it's so tough to say that, um, you know, was how it was... Um, Oh, I'm blanking on his, on his name right now. Um, was Terrence Howard? No, was Terrence Howard that either miscast or that not right for the part, or was the part just not fully realized at that point? Which it could be because again, this was when the recent incarnation of of Marvel was starting. There were a lot of gambles that that were and a lot of risks. So maybe they weren't trying to fully develop enough people until they saw, okay, we've got something. We've got something here. Let's finally develop everything, you know, so. Yeah. Now, coming in at number three was a bit of a departure, but Guardians of the Galaxy. This movie, if this movie, they tried to make it, you know, right at the same time that the first Iron Mans were coming out and things like that, this movie would have absolutely failed. Because at least Iron Man, you know, some people some people know who he is. Um, the Hulk, you know, he had a TV show before and another movie before with Eric Pena, things like that. Captain America is really famous. Thor isn't, you know, that too crazy, out of this world, part of the pun of a, of a character to bring in. But Guardians of the Galaxy... I had literally never heard of it until they had announced it. It's it's a newer <laughs> franchise in the comic book realm as well, not just uh, cinematically. And you are also dealing with people who uh, have never really carried a film. Chris Pat- Pratt at that time was not a leading man. You know, now uh, a year later, it's easy to say that. Um, but you know, for the most part, he was known for Parks and Rec. And it was like, what are they doing? Getting the the, the chubby guy for Parks and Rec to be a superhero? That makes no sense. Yeah, or you know, um, Bradley Cooper as a raccoon, or Vin Diesel. As a tree, actually, I don't know if that's too far off, actually. Um, His jokes acting is aside, a little wooden. Exactly. Jokes aside, um, I'm with you. The one good thing about this Marvel Universe expansion cinematically is that it saved Marvel altogether when it comes to toys, when it comes to comics. Well, I guess comics are more important because that's where it all started. But um, uh, the movies are basically taking what the comics try to do and are giving it to the masses who are fully appreciative of it. And Guardians of the Galaxy is a great staple as to how this worked, not just because of 
the inclusion of this story within the bigger picture. But I think in terms of a comic book being a movie, Guardians of the Galaxy did that out of any Marvel movie ever, even outside of this, uh, this little square we have now, the absolute best. The visuals look like a comic book coming to life. The characters are like the speech bubbles are floating above their heads. Just everything about this movie is as comic book as it can get. And I know I've talked about this before in my review. Um, if it wasn't for that ending, which really let me down, I would think that this is easy, easily the strongest Marvel movie that there is. Because, um, again, it's great that this that the Marvel franchise cinematically is going so well because it's introducing a love for the comics to everybody. So, again, if this was a while ago, if you included people like Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver into the Avengers, a lot of people would have scratched their heads and gone like, wait, who? But now everybody was fully excited because now they're, they know more of the comics because of their this recent interest created by, um, by the movies. So you're right. This had to have been the time that Guardians of the Galaxy came out, and it was a perfect time. It was an excellent cast with just a great atmosphere created around it. It was just everything about it, except for that ending for me, was every box being ticked off with absolute ease. I, I think it's kind of funny where you you look at the cast of all the main Guardians, and of them all, Zoe Saldana made the most sense. You know, she's done quite a few action movies. She's done genre films with the Star Trek stuff and things like that. Um she she definitely fit in the most compared to Bradley Cooper as a talking raccoon and Vin Diesel saying one word and Chris Pratt as the leading man in a, a WWE wrestler uh, taking a big part. Yeah, for some reason, I felt that she was probably the weakest out of all of the characters on screen. Uh, a little bit. Uh, again, just because it's the weakest doesn't mean that she was poor. I think she did a good job, but you're right. When it comes to... People being memorable. You had Chris Pratt's amazing reactions to things and the fact that he could actually stand his ground and not just be goofy. Bradley Cooper, who was pretty much solely voice work, and um, the fact that he made this roadkill come to life and be like the sassiest, biggest jerk of the entire movie, but still lovable. Vin Diesel, who I guess, sadly, after the death of Paul Walker, used that as, as a push to really inject emotion into, into his character as Groot, which, oddly enough, I think is his best character he's ever done, Vin Diesel. And even then, you have Dave Bautista, who was only, not only thankful for being in a Marvel movie, he was scared of letting everybody down. So he took the extra acting work. And you know what? You could see that he did it because he's actually pretty damn good. And it even works where his character is a little bit wooden and uncomfortable with uh, human emotions and, and uh, um, how do I say it, like um, connections and traditions and things like that. He his, his alien character doesn't understand that. And because he's a little bit off guard and, you know, we're like, oh, I'm going to stand, stand a little bit back from all, all this it sort of fits in with his acting where it almost worked perfectly together because, you know, he obviously wasn't the strongest actor of the group, but his acting worked for the character very well. Yeah, and you can tell when a director recognizes a weakness and they use it to that advantage. But I, even so, I do agree that Batista is, oh, is weaker out of the main cast, but at the same time, I feel like a little bit of it was 
uh, James Gunn's directing and knowing what to do with this character. And a little bit of it was actually Batista injecting it himself. And I feel like not all of it was him kind of um, having to be directed in such a way. I feel like a lot of it was a self-inflicted character where he said, okay, I know this is harder to do, so I'm going to make it harder to do for myself. So it, it shows across more on screen. It's not just me not being able to do something. And um, as true as this is, acting badly is sometimes harder than acting well. And I think you would know that out of anybody because you studied acting, right? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm very curious how they're going to connect the Guardians franchise to the rest of the Avengers franchise. Yeah, there was a bit of a crossover at the end of Thor 2 where Benicio Del Toro's character shows up. Uh, but Ooh. other than that, there's still no real connection. I do believe that probably introducing the Guardians world through Thor is the best way because it's aliens and aliens sort of thing. Uh, but I'm curious, is Guardians going to come back to Earth? Are they actually in the future what's sort of happening with that and how are they gonna tie them all in together it's a good question well at least there is a scheduled sequel sometime in the near future so i guess once we get there um we'll get there but i think everybody's pretty much excited for it so yeah and coming in at number two the big runner-up is avengers one so this one, uh, this was basically like the big tent pole after all of this build up, build up, build up. It finally came out in 2012, directed by Joss Whedon, the first one that he did. And it did not let down. I thought this was a really good way of melding all these different personalities together to the point where, you know, you didn't have to give iron man 50 percent of the movie you know you can give him scenes here and there because you already know and understand the character's motivations he doesn't need to be in literally every single scene for it to make sense and with the proper introduction of um mark ruffalo's hulk it was that was sort of the nice new fresh blood sort of thing into the franchise yeah now i'm not the biggest joss whedon fan but i do love and i mean love some of the things that he's done um, I do think he has weaker moments, uh, which again, aren't necessarily awful or anything, but you can notice what, what's better of his and what's not. And Avengers two, I would say is great, but it doesn't hold a candle to just one, because that is some of Whedon's best work where you can see his absolute intelligence when it comes to combining the severity of some situations when it comes to what it means for humanity and what it means to be a superhero in a superhero movie. It's a lot of fun with a lot of really great one-liners. It's, it's this universe that ties all of these characters that we've seen beforehand, aside from Mark Ruffalo's Hulk, as you've said, he kind of had to be reinstated in this movie. Um, you see all these characters being tied together and it shows the masterwork of a truly gifted screenwriter. And, I love the fact that it is still a Marvel movie that's a lot of fun, but it does have the devastation that a lot of movies outside of this universe try to have. Like, for instance, in The Dark Knight, a lot of it is severity and trauma, which you get a little bit of that in, in this first Avengers movie. Not enough to make it alienated, but it feels like that payoff that we waited for. Seeing, you know, this movie called The First Avenger, seeing all of these new movies being, like, pumped out for the lead-up to this movie... You finally see this movie and you say, you know what, you're, you're right, Dakota, that was absolutely worth it because that felt like what they were trying to do was not just a cash grab, 
it just needed a lot of time to for us to be devoted to these characters in order to get this massive two hour long payout yeah i really liked and they brought loki back as the main villain and he definitely sold it as you know he was over the top he had the strength you believe that he was actually worthy of fighting all these people together um and it just sort of everything meshed perfectly together all the personalities clashed at just the right amount for it to mesh together yeah absolutely and even though i love how the characters are, are a bit more comfortable now in Age of Ultron, so you get to see a little bit more of that. You could also just make really memorable moments just from how special it is to like just have the spark of relationships. And for, for a franchise that tried to devote itself to being a, one of longevity and um, mass appeal outside of just marketing, more of just its connection to its fan base as well, this movie set the tone very, very well because look at how strong it is. Look at how devoted so many people are. You have people who saw Avengers who said, damn, okay, I need to see those other ones now and see what this is all about. You know, Not everybody had to see the other Avengers movies to get this one, whereas with some of the other Marvel movies, I would argue that. But this one is great as a standalone. It's great within its own, within the entire series and bigger picture of it all. And yeah, if... Iron Man basically helped start the recent Marvel revival, but if anything made it the powerhouse that it is, it's the Avengers. Yeah, it really was a sort of a game changer, if you will. Uh, and, I, and I'm glad that it came out. Um, now, on to our number one, where we were both unanimous about it, would be Captain America 2. Now, that one, uh, that one also just came out uh, back in 2014, last year, and it was directed by the Russo brothers, who are actually going to be coming back to be doing the next Captain America. They're most known for um, working on Arrested Development in Community, and so there was a bit of a, a question of how they would translate that sitcom sort of sensibilities to handling a big action movie people wondered oh is it going to be heavy on the humor things like that and what it does is it made a really good genre spy film i think it was just like cut and dry a great spy action adventure film yeah and if anything this is highest on my list in terms of quality alone let's say that but even if it wasn't as high as it is in quality which it is for sure I think I would have put it at first anyways, because this shows promise for the standalone films within the universe. And not just standalone, but the sequels as well. Not only is it better than Captain America, um, the first Avenger, which was not a bad movie in itself, it's greatly so. I mean, I think many people, not even just us, agree that The Winter Soldier is such a, such a powerful movie uh, because it does what it's supposed to. As you said, it's not just a superhero movie. It does incorporate an espionage aspect to it. It incorporates characters like Scarlett Johansson as Black Widow, who was quite undermined in a movie that brought her to the universe. She gets a much better turnout here, where if the Avengers didn't make her a better character, this movie certainly did. And 
just the cast is so big and just so colorful, you know. You have so many people who are so talented. You have uh, people coming back, like Chris Evans, um, Anthony Mackie, and uh, Haley Atwell, which I think is better in this film than in the original Captain America, and I think you'd agree there. But you also have people like Emily Van Camp and Robert Redford, for instance. You know, just everybody utilized in this movie was fully so, and just everything was intricate, necessary, and well thought out, as opposed to, oh, we just need this person for this character. We need a love interest. You know, like this one was fully, fully integrated with everything it wanted to be. Absolutely. Uh, small correction. This was Anthony Mackie's first film. He wasn't in the, the previous one, any previous ones. <laughs> right. Um, okay. My mistake. <laughs> but I, I, I thought he was definitely a, a sort of a standout, the standout supporting character in this uh, outside of Scarlett Johansson. As far as the the smaller roles go, he brought some real life and sort of grounded the whole military aspect um of Captain America and didn't make it all just raw, raw war is good uh, with his stuff in the, in the VA offices and dealing with uh, people that have post-traumatic stress uh, and things like that. Uh, I, I thought Anthony Mackie was fantastic, especially considering how he was in the Hurt Locker before. And this almost seems like, oh, hey, after the Hurt Locker, this is who the character becomes almost. Yeah. And Anthony Mackie is like a few other actors who, who we've uh, seen in this uh, in this universe. Paul Bendy, for instance, and uh, H. Voltron, I think, did a great job. But there's a lot of actors who have such potential who get overlooked or cast into the wrong things. And Anthony Mackie is definitely somebody who I think is a terrific actor. And especially after The Herlocker, I was expecting a lot more great roles out of him. And the thing is, he's always good, but his movies aren't always. So to see him in this you know, as you said, it was a great service to his talents because he truly is a phenomenal actor. And out of all things, an action comic book movie is something that really brought that out and not some of the dramas he's done. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's sort of a shame that they sort of wasted him in Avengers 2 where he showed up just at the very end and things like that. Uh, yeah, just as a teaser, that's it, you know? <laughs> yeah, which was a little kind of frustrating. Either, you know, have him, have him in there completely or... or use him as a proper cameo because he showed up right at the end to sort of fight and then was there for the new Avengers stuff. But like yeah. none of it was really worthwhile. So it was a little weird. I, w I would have rather it either use him properly or don't use him at all sort of thing. Um, but someone who also really stood out was um, Sebastian Stan, who was playing Bucky Barnes in the first movie and then playing, captain america's best friend childhood best friend and then he's presumed dead he comes back and is also frozen awoken brainwashed to becoming a bad guy in the winter soldier and i thought he did a really excellent job with that absolutely and whereas we had people before where it's like oh this actor is great this actor is great sebastian stan is definitely somebody i overlooked because i don't really know much of his stuff i know he's briefly in like black swan i'm not somebody who's really into like gossip girl or anything else he's done so you know this universe is not just great for having established actors doing what they do best it's also great at bringing light to somebody who um to actors who kind of need it like Elizabeth Olsen, I think a lot of us can agree, is a, is a great actress, but she needed better films outside of um, 
aside of her great debut, uh, Martha, or Martha Marcy May Marlene. And this was the best thing she's done since. Now, Sebastian Stan as well, I think this is easily, without question, the best thing he's ever done. I think you'd agree there. Yeah, he really was. And you, you made a, he made you actually care about uh, the conflicts that were going on between him and Chris Evans, the two of them. Chris Evans not wanting to fight his best friend and figure out what was going on. And Sebastian Stan playing this brainwashed person. The two of them just work very well together. Um, all of that yeah. compounded with a, a good subplot about um, uh, the S.H.I.E.L.D. agency that uh, Nick Fury runs basically imploding uh, from uh, being invaded by by the bad guy sort of thing was was very interesting. There was a whole lot of complicated issues going on that made it all worthwhile. Yeah, this movie was a great testament to Captain America's character, where, as you said, he's the most heartfelt and emotional and um, heartstrung out of all the Avengers. You definitely see that here with, with his conflicts with um, those he trusts the most. Uh, how does he view them now in a different light? It was great for expanding the, Mar- the Marvel Universe because, as you said, it it takes on um, Nick Fury's um, inclusion into the whole universe. I think it's probably his best, um, like Samuel L. Jackson and Nick Fury's character, like the character is just the best inclusion into the universe is actually in this film, never mind just the Avengers. Um, you see how well integrated it is with the bigger picture of everything and not just as a standalone, but it is still a standalone Captain America movie. It just did everything right and what all these other um, standalone Marvel movies are trying to do. This one did it the best, and it did it so well that we both agreed it's better than the Avengers. <laughs> I think, as far as a franchise goes, it is for the most part very fun. I don't think, other than select moments in certain films, it has a lot of depth to it. But when it does bring the depth, they handle it fairly well there's only one or two films that are kind of unwatchable the rest are very good popcorn films so as a whole i think they're doing something right yeah no this has been the the urge to find what it means to be a comic book movie that isn't as depressing as a dark knight trilogy this battle has been going on since the well not that the dark knight existed back then but you know there's there's want to see how to convert comics into movies since the 80s you know and i think we've slowly come our way here and you can see each and every little step in breadcrumb as to how we got here but we're finally at a point where you know with movies like guardians of the galaxy feeling like a living comic book with um captain america the winter soldier being something that's not as heavy and depressing as the dark knight trilogy but still intricate enough to be something poignant and, you know, like the Avengers, where it just brings everything together. We're finally seeing this realization of what comic book movies can be in the Marvel world. Absolutely. And who knows, maybe after all these films are done in the next few years, we'll have to do a second episode of this and uh, rank all the new films that we've seen and maybe do one big master list. I don't know. We'll have to figure something out. Either way, I think this was a lot of fun to talk about. We don't have to be serious all the time, but we still had some fun things to say. All that said, please, we would really appreciate it if you follow us on Twitter. That's at ContraZoomPod. Um, please send us whatever you think. Hey, maybe you think uh, The Incredible Hulk is worth defending. Please tell me if it is. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at DGAPA. 
and at and you can find me on Twitter at Andreas Babs. And make sure you uh, you check out the show on liveandlimbo.com where all the show notes are going to be. And uh, and please subscribe on iTunes. Give us a rating. We love it. It helps us. All feedback is great. Um, and hey, we'll, uh, we'll get back together and we'll do this again sometime. How does that sound, Andreas? Sounds perfect. Thanks so much for listening. Just